Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Well, all right, people. Well, you have reached the Oddcast featuring the Odd Man out, and this week we're going to take on part two of the Pilgrim Society. I hope that you guys liked that last episode. It was kind of a cursory introduction to the Pilgrim Society and the theory that perhaps the crown still controls America or has been trying to take complete control of America for a very long time. This is a conspiracy I never gave much thought to until recently because it just seems so silly because, you know, we see the Brits, the British government, the, even the military and the par, you know members of parliament fighting. And it's kind of silly, really no sillier than our pretend government and what they do. But, you know, they look fairly weak and they kind of come across as weak. And I think that that could be because perhaps they really don't even have that much power and it is a farce and it is much to do about political theater and keeping the citizens into thinking that they have a government, but yet it's just controlled by these monopoly corporations who are partnered up with the government and these bankers and whatnot. So anyway, I think if we think about it in that way, it starts to kind of make sense. And also you hear it's always the Jesuits, the Jesuits, or the Zionists, the Zionists. Well, of course it is those groups, and they are a part of this whole thing, but there's many other groups as well, but they all seem to have similar goals. And I think that they perhaps are willing and have been willing to work together in some instances for common goals and the common good of their institutions and their organizations. And they know that they'll have a place in this new world order if it ever comes to fruition, which seems to be closer than ever. 
And really, if you think about the way everything's structured and how long these groups have been around, especially when you're talking about the Rhodes Roundtables, which started, you know, I read on my Patreon quotes from the last will and testament of Cecil Rhodes, which was written the year he died. I think W.T. Stead had began to uh, write that several years before Cecil Rhodes died, but he said, in 1877, while Cecil Rhodes was at Oxford University, he was writing part of these plans to form these secret societies to take over the world. And so you have to think that this plan has been underway for a very long time. Of course, Cecil Rhodes wasn't the first to want to take over the world. There's been others, but he was probably the smartest. And they have been doing it in increments, you know, incrementally for years and years, a little bit at a time. And really, they've pulled the wool over the people's eyes for so very long now. I mean, trying to tell, you know, some regular person about this whole roads plan and the roads roundtables and how this whole history is back there in the background that the schools don't teach and how these powerful groups have been behind all these wars and these crises and different things like that. I mean, you cannot get through to people because they've just, they, they can't comprehend these things. But if there was one group, if there was one, you know, movement that had a pretty good reason and the power and the knowledge to take over the world and create this conspiracy, of course it would be the British government because they had had years and years to perfect these type of things in other parts of the world. We have to remember that Cecil Rhodes was partially funded by the Rothschilds, yes, to go to Rhodesia, to South Africa, to mine for the gold and the diamonds, but also partly by the East India Company, which was a British company who was famous for getting many people hooked on opium, including the Chinese and the Indians and different people like that. And if you read here in the Encyclopedia Britannica.com, they're kind of making it seem like, well, you know, the uh, Brits had to do this, the British government, because there was this trade imbalance. And so they had to sell this opium to China to make up for the trade deficit, you know, and of course it's all uh, about money. The love of money is the root of all evil. So you have to understand that Cecil Rhodes was partially funded by them, but not only that, as uh, Michael McKibben has pointed out, Rhodes was also blessed by the crown. And um, McKibben, I haven't looked into it, even says that he has proof from the documents that he's found that Cecil Rhodes was indeed on the Queen's Privy Council. So he had full blessings and he was probably partially funded by the King and Queen as well. And of course, that leads to all of his high profile friends and how they formed the Society of the Elect. And of course, Eventually, after Rhodes died, the Pilgrim Society. Now, I have a book that I've gotten over the last week, and it is The Pilgrims, The Pilgrim Society of the United States. And that book is kind of like your whitewashed normie history 
of the pilgrims written by someone that they probably hired to do it. Uh, let's see. Let's look at her name here. It's an interesting book, and it's pretty easy to find. Uh, she's written two of them, one on the British uh, version of the uh, pilgrims. Her name is Anne Pimlot Baker. So one of the good things about it, though, it only tells the good side of the pilgrims and the dinner societies and all that, the dinner meetings and banquets and all that. But it has the lists of names of all these guys. And I just opened up to a random page here and you've got Grover Cleveland in there. Uh, Henry Britton, who was a big player in there. The Prince of Wales, uh, Thomas Lamont, Lord Halifax. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, so many presidents and ambassadors. So that was one of the huge things. The pilgrims, when a new ambassador to either the UK or the US would be installed, he his first speech would be at the Pilgrim Society. So if it, he was the new ambassador to the United States from the UK, he would go over and speak in the United States in front of those pilgrims and vice versa. So men of great stature and wealth and power have been Pilgrim Society members. And you can see in the book, the whitewashed book, that that is true. And I wanted to mention also, uh, I think the possible further proof that this is true or has credibility. Now, that doesn't mean that every person that attended a Pilgrim Society dinner or banquet. I mean, I, I was looking in there and there was a couple of years where they had over a thousand guests. And obviously, not all thousand guests are in these elite circles. But, you know, it's the same. A lot of these guys are the same people from the 13 bloodlines of the Illuminati. And these old school, the, you know, the old money that is still in play to this day, even if they haven't kept their businesses with the family name, a lot of them are smart and take their family name off. They're still in play and in power and making, you know, tons and tons of money right now. So we have to think about that. But I thought I would look into a couple of famous quotes that kind of perhaps point to the fact that maybe these people were talking about the pilgrims Maybe they didn't know the name Pilgrim Society, but I think that that's what they were pointing towards. So Carol Quigley here from Tragedy and Hope in page 950, he says, and this is under chapter American Confusions, he says this myth, and he's talking about this myth of this group that's taken over the government or trying to take over the government. This myth, like all fables, does in fact have a modicum of truth. There does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the roundtable groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups, and frequently does. I know of these operations and this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, 
notably to its belief that England was an Atlantic rather than a European power and must be allied or even federated with the United States and must remain isolated from Europe. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. And he was the guy who Bill Clinton mentions in this quote right here. As a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then as a student at Georgetown, I heard that call clarified by a professor named Carol Quigley. A project was launched in the last quarter of the 19th century in England with powerful help from a few American families who believed that the separation of the two countries had been the worst event in human history and they wanted to work toward a long-term reintegration of, of Britain, the whole English-speaking world as one country. That was their uh, goal of the, of the agenda. The values that had been forged by the British upper classes, the kind of society that they had tempered and designed could become the clothing for the entire globe, but it would take time. I mean, one of the big things would be a common currency and a common language, but they knew that would be a long way off. So they began by setting up 23 bases all over the planet. Now, all those bases are still in business. The one in the United States is right up on 66th Street. It's called the Council on Foreign Relations. And they have different names in different places. But the idea was to draw into that club the best, the brightest, and the most influential people from the entire country, from all races and all walks of life, and to use those people as the resonator of the idea of globalization. And if there is a conspiracy at work among these men, why hasn't someone on the inside exposed it? The answer is, someone has. Dr. Carol Quigley is a professor of history at Georgetown University. He is the author of the widely used textbook, Evolution of Civilization. He is a member of the editorial board of the monthly periodical, Current History. He has been a frequent lecturer and consultant for such groups as the Industrial College of the Armed Forces, the Brookings Institution, the U.S. Naval Weapons Laboratory, the Naval College, the Smithsonian Institute, and the State Department. Dr. Quigley also has been closely associated with many of the family dynasties of the super-rich. He is, by his own boast, an insider with a front-row view of the world's money power structure. When Dr. Quigley wrote this 1,300-page book of dry history entitled Tragedy and Hope, it was obvious that it would never be read by the masses. It was intended for the intellectual elite. And to such a select readership, Dr. Quigley cautiously exposed one of the best-kept secrets of all time. But he also made it quite clear that he was an extremely friendly apologist for this group, 
and that he fully supports their goals and purposes. On page 950, Dr. Quigley says, I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. In general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown. Dr. Quigley believes that people should be more familiar with the identities of these clever banking dynasties. They include such names as Baring, Hambros, Lazard, Erlanger, Warburg, Schroeder, Seligman, The Spires, Mirabeau, Mallet, Fold, and above all, Rothschild and Morgan. It should be noted that while the Rothschilds and other Jewish families cooperated together in these ventures, this was by no means a Jewish monopoly, as some have alleged. Men of finance of many nationalities and many religious and non-religious backgrounds collaborated together to create this superstructure of hidden power. So this guy was an insider. He had connections, big-time connections, and he was able to access the records and find out some of this stuff, or else we may not have known half of what we know now. And so even though... Quigley doesn't mention the Pilgrims by name. He speaks of this network or this inner network at the top of the Council on Foreign Relations and these roundtable groups. So I presume that he's talking about the Pilgrims, although maybe we can never prove it 100%. Another really good author on the subjects of conspiracy and alternative history Anthony C. Sutton, who I mention a lot, and a lot of people in this circle that talk about the things I do also mention him, but he was a great writer. And in his book, America's Secret Establishment, An Introduction to the Order of the Skull and Bones, he's got a small little section there on the Council on Foreign Relations. And he says that they're not all in some sort of giant conspiracy, which I don't believe they are. You know, that goes back to Dennis L. Cuddy. These elites, these globalists, they think alike, and they have been brought up the same way, to believe the same things, educated the same way, blah, blah, blah. So it's not some kind of grand conspiracy. But Sutton does say at the end, however, there is a group within the Council on Foreign Relations which belongs to a secret society sworn to secrecy and which more or less controls the CFR. CFR meetings are used for their own purposes, i.e. to push out ideas to weigh upon the people who might be useful to use meetings as a forum for discussion. These members are in the order. I guess he's talking about the order of the skull and bones. Their membership in the order can be proven. Their meetings can be proven. Their objectives are plainly unconstitutional, and this order has existed for 150 years in the United States. So obviously he's talking about the Skull and Bones, but some Skull and Bones members have been affiliated with the Pilgrim Society. And of course, all these different uh, organizations are somehow affiliated with the Council on Foreign Relations because of its size and its influence. So I have to wonder if perhaps this order isn't also the Pilgrims. But again, we may never know 100 percent if indeed Sutton was talking about the Pilgrim Society because he doesn't mention them by name. Now, one thing that stands out to me, and this goes right along with some of the quotes from 
Cecil Rhodes when he talked about taking over the media. And then, of course, in the 19, early 1900s, J.P. Morgan bought out the famous 25 newspapers and put his editor of his choosing, his editors of his choosing in. So let's look here. Uh, early on, it says 1904, a major general... Henry Clark Corbin was one of the first vice presidents of the Pilgrims. Leading New Yorkers included John Jacob Astor, Morris K. Jessup, another vice president, president of the Chamber of Commerce of New York, Adolph S. Ox, owner of the New York Times, and Timothy L. Woodruff, lieutenant governor of the New York State. Andrew Carnegie joined the Pilgrims in 1906 and J.P. Morgan in 1910. Is here also uh, da, 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 actor Richard Mansfield, writer and publisher Frank A. Muncy, and Hamilton W. Maybe, associate editor of the Outlook. Uh, journalist here, R.J. Mooney, on the editorial staff of the New York Tribune. So it's pretty interesting the way it came together for the New York branch. Uh, in London, there was a bunch of American journalists in town for the coronation of King Edward. And he fell ill and got, I think it said he had appendicitis. So they got the idea, why don't we invite all these journalists in town because there's not going to be a coronation and let's talk about it and pitch the idea. So they were able to get in, let's see here, American correspondents who replied enthusiastically were Albert S. Crockett and Milton V. Snyder of the New York Herald, Walter Neef of the Associated Press, Ian Ford of the New York Tribune, and H.R. Chamberlain of the New York Sun. And they were all interested in the prospects of an easier access to British statesmen and men of affairs. So that's kind of how they sold the whole thing. And uh, it went on to have quite a few journalists in it. Of course, now you know that the CFR is absolutely full of journalists. And so you look at all these different groups, and it's really just all these different interlocking networks, and they all play parts of this thing, and they all have these roles. And even if they don't know that they have goals, they all are pushing towards similar ones. So that's kind of how this whole thing works. But again, just in a simplistic fashion of thinking, who would have more of a reason to try and bring down America and control it than the Brits? Because, you know, supposedly we beat them. And when I talk about Brits in America, I'm obviously talking about the government. I'm not talking about us. It's, it's you know, it's like any other country it's the governments that are the problems and it's the governments who are trying to control everything for the benefit of themselves for the most part. So we have to understand that. So anyway, I think that if we point out some of these things and talk about some of these things, uh, you know, I, it's hard to say because I don't have all the information and I'm still learning, but it's very easy to say, Oh, it's all the pilgrims or it's all this or all that. Because, like I said before, people say that about the Jesuits and the Zionists. But I want to look at this piece by piece and part by part and kind of build the um, evidence for you guys, the listeners, and let you guys make up your own minds. Now, I had the pleasure of talking over an hour to Michael McKibben of Americans for Innovation, and he's one of the top researchers 
in this field on the Pilgrims. So he has agreed he will come on the show. Very, very nice guy and extremely knowledgeable. I mean, he was throwing out so many things that there was no way I could remember it all. So I want to learn a little bit more about this subject before I have him on because I don't want to come off like a moron and I want to be complimentary to his information because he really knows his stuff. So look forward to that in the near future, God willing. Now, I was looking around at some of my books in my library and I was like, I've got to have a few more books that mention this Pilgrim Society. There must be. Not much, really. I found a book by William P. Hoare called Architects of Conspiracy, and I've yet to read this book, but I've been wanting to, and I did find the Pilgrims in there one time briefly mentioned. And he's talking about the lead up to World War One, and you know, up until that point, many people know that we were a non-interventionist country, not an isolationist country, as the warmongers love to say, even still to this day. And that, those are two different things. Isolationism is not talking to a country or dealing with any issues whatsoever, and that makes you sound like you're just unreasonable. But non-intervention is not jumping to war at every chance so you can claim more land or make more money for the military-industrial complex or get your sphere of influence to become greater. So there's two hugely different things there. But anyway, so I'm just going to read a little bit up into the point where it talks about the pilgrims, and I'll read just a little bit after that. He says, meanwhile, President Woodrow Wilson was publicly urging that we must be neutral in thought and action and that the war's causes were too complex as to ascribe guilt to any party. But the Eastern establishment was distinctly Anglophile. Moreover, the war news in the U.S. was virtually whatever the British censors would allow. For on August 5th, 1914, their navy dredged up and cut the German cables to this country. Thereafter, the bulk of the war news was routed through London. In charge of the British propaganda in this country, assisted by A.J. Toynbee, was Sir Gilbert Parker, who acknowledged, after the war, practically since the day the war broke out, I was responsible for American publicity. Parker, according to H.C. Peterson, supplied 360 American newspapers in the U.S. with English commentary on the war. Peterson's informative book, Propaganda for War, also details the male censorship, which eliminated all references to actions by soldiers of the Allied countries, which might be considered uncivilized. Early in 1917, says Mr. Peterson, there were 3,700 persons in London alone censoring mail and 1,500 in Liverpool. The operation, headquartered in Wellington House, was nonetheless so well done that by many English officials did not even know there was such a thing as British war propaganda. Among the groups which dealt exclusively with such propaganda, records Peterson, was the Pilgrim Society in England under Harry Britton. This organization fostered the Hands Across the Sea movement, which made a very strong appeal to Americans. The Pilgrim's Club was similarly effective and received the commendation of Sir Gilbert Parker. The Pilgrims have long been involved in the conspiracy for world government, and with the roundtable groups, 
were responsible for the founding of the Conspiratorial Council on Foreign Relations. I'll read just a little bit more. Like all such conflicts, World War I was not without its share of atrocities, nor without lies about atrocities, a propaganda practice recommended even in ancient China by military strategist Sun Tzu. It was in England, after all, that the story was circulated that Napoleon ate babies. Similarly, in the war between the states in this country, it was rumored that southern bells wore necklaces made of lacquered Yankee eyeballs. James Morgan Reed has noted that the same eyeball story resurfaced in the Bucharest Papers in 1914 about German women, of course. Atrocity Propaganda, New Haven, Yale Press, 1941. That's the only thing I could find about the pilgrims in that book, but that was good enough, right? That was pretty important. And that was a piece of information that was missing. And to say that they were in charge of propaganda, that's huge. Propaganda is huge in war. And of course, we've talked about Edward Bernays and uh, George Creel, and we've talked about the Committee on Public Information and Walter Lippmann and all that. So it's really these little bits of information that help us to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. And so we add little by little and we start to see the story coming along and you start to see this hidden history being put together the way we've never quite thought of it before. Another book that actually mentions the pilgrims quite a bit and mostly just in reference to the members was uh, 13 Bloodlines of the Illuminati by Fritz Springmeier. So we will look at that book as well. That's a huge book, and it's really quite a chore to go through it. And I've decided for my patrons that I'm going to start going through that massive book and kind of covering those families. Because I know a lot of people have heard of the book, or they might have read some passages here or there, or heard some quotes but they are really not familiar with the book because it's so big and it's hard to find. I mean, you can find it on PDF, even on the CIA.gov website. But, uh, you know, I think that it's kind of important because it kind of leads back to these pilgrims because it's many of the same families who are in the pilgrims uh, that were part of the 13 bloodlines. So I think that uh, that would be a real good thing to do. I've already started it. I haven't posted it yet. But if you want to become a member of the Society of the Cryptic Savants, then join my Patreon. Okay, so as I was going through the books, I found a book I haven't read yet called Empire of the City by E.C. Newth. That's K-N-U-T-H. And right in the intro, he's talking about the pilgrims. And uh, he's talking about all the things that happened in the early 1900s and, of course, the way the globalists were pushing and all the things that came out of the Rhodes Roundtables and the way, basically, the British government was really trying to take over things. Uh, and he says here, he's talking about books that have been written on this subject. And he says, most of these scholarly works are devoted to some passing phase of power politics in some part of the world which their author has made a specialized study in, yet they have invariably been forgotten as the public lost interest in that particular incident. In running through these works, some amazing nuggets of information come to light here and there. When fitted together, what gradually unfolds is the stunning history and legal structure of a sovereign world state located in the financial district of the loosely knit 
aggregation of boroughs and cities popularly known as the City of London. The colossal political and financial organization centered in this area known as the City operates as a super government of the world. No incident occurs in any part of the world without its participation in some form. Its pretensions are supported in the United States by the secret International Pilgrim Society, sponsor of the Cecil Rhodes One World Government Ideology, which was launched about 1897. The president of its American branch is Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler, also president of the Allied Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. The ultimate objective of this Camarilla was defined by one of its noted propagandists, the late William Allen White. Thus, this is what he says here. I got to go switch pages here. Thus, it is the destiny the pure Aryan Anglo-Saxon race must dominate the world and kill off or else reduce to a servile status all other inferior races. Holy crap. After reducing the vast mass of data forming the basis of this work into a logical and readable sequence, it was finally put into print and privately published after a long delay and copywritten May 22, 1944. About 200 copies were sent to various members of Congress, thus largely performing the purpose of the first edition. Several of the members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee accorded some attention to this. On August 12, 1944, Senator Henrik Shipstead of Minnesota wrote, This document containing the result of your research was so interesting that it spoiled most of my sleep that night. I have been doing some research along the same lines, and I find my time in that respect is limited. You have done a great deal of work that will save me a great deal of time. Okay, uh, he's just kind of talking about here how a few people have lauded him for his work. So let's see what else we can find about the pilgrims in here. Okay, here we go. And I have to read a little bit ahead of time to kind of let you know where he is in the book and make it all come together here. But he says, some of the reasons are developed in the following chapters in documented detail, but there are some evident and very practical reasons. Our newspapers are absolutely dependent on the advertising of great business interests for their existence. Perhaps the principal function of college presidents is to collect the funds upon which the existence of their institution depends to be on the right terms with the right people. The news definitely points to the existence of the secret world government of the city. It's treated with dense silence. The current activities of what has been identified as the most powerful international society on earth, the pilgrims, are so wrapped up in silence that few Americans know even that it has been in existence since 1903. As a glaring example, let us consider the Senate hearing held on January 28, 1940. Senator Gerald Nye cross-examined Henry Morgenthau, Jr. as to the contacts of his father with the peculiar activities of the mysterious and secret British statesman Viscount Reginald Escher. Now, Lord Escher was definitely a pilgrim. I remember reading that. The surprising part is that not even one newspaper in the United States gave an inch of space to this immensely sensational exposure. While Senator Nye, like many other statesmen who have ventured too far into forbidden realms, was effectively submerged. As appears here and after, the late President David Jordan of Stanford University 
did much to expose the machinations of this international Camarilla with that he was subjected to indignity and persecution during the World War I period, as was also the late Congressman Lindbergh of Minnesota, father of Colonel Charles Lindbergh. As may be evident from the numerous quotations here and after, many of the great teachers and professors of our universities have tried to throw some light into the situation with little success. Their works have been accorded little recognition. They have been labeled controversial. These works have been treated with the contempt of silence. One source estimates the average circulation of books of this kind as little over 7,000 copies. Contrast this with massive million-copy circulations of the highly acclaimed and widely publicized products of the proponents of internationalism, with the complete domination of the radio by internationalist propagandists, with billion-dollar funds out of the public treasury devoted to educating and informing the people, with the newspapers filled with matter supplied by foreign information services, with opposition controlled so as to be based on such superficial and spurious reasons as to merely help hide and detract attention from the real reasons. During the Coolidge administration, the Republican Party reached such a high status as the defender of nationalism that Mr. Coolidge has been accused in some internationalist circles of being directly responsible for the internationalist recession. This recession opened the way for the rebirth of nationalism in the totalitarian countries, among which Russia must be included. However, this Republican nationalism has declined steadily under the encroachment of the internationalist money powers, so that charges of manipulation and bribery were brought after the 1940 campaign. The candidate of 1944 was the admitted pupil of a noted internationalist and trustee of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. The results of the 35 years operation of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace speaks for itself. Okay, I think he yeah, he mentions the pilgrims here once again. He says, a resolution by Senator Langer, Republican senator from North Dakota, was to investigate the charge of C. Nelson Sparks in one man, Wendell Wilkie. The accusation was that Mr. T.J. Lamont, former president of J.P. Morgan and Company and chairman of the executive committee of the pilgrims, had bought the votes of delegates to the Republican National Convention of 1940 with a room full of money. However, this resolution was effectively submerged without any adequate public explanation. So, you know, the things that happened then are the things that happen now. It's all the same. I think a lot of you guys are listening to this. You understand that politics is, is like the mafia and there's payoffs and there's briberies and there's blackmail. And to believe this crap that comes out of the White House, out of the, the state and out of the media, which is GovCorp media. It's just ridiculous to still fall for that and think that's all there is to politics. I don't see how people can allow themselves to be so simplistic. And uh, I guess maybe it's partly fear and they don't want to think about what could be, but still it's just ridiculous because a lot of these people still get all emotional about politics and they get all worked up in defending their parties and whatnot and don't understand that it's pretty much meaningless because you're not looking deeper into the subjects. It's funny, in the next line, the guy goes on this uh, E.C. News to mention the octopus of power. So I guess that term has been around for a very long time. But um, 
Let's see what else we can find. I know he mentions the pilgrims again a few times here. Okay, now he's looking into the Spanish-American War and the Pilgrim Society's role in that. It is interesting to recollect that the Spanish-American War, whose eventual cost is here admitted as appalling, lasted a little over three and a half months. The condemnation of the Spanish-American War and of the part played in its making by Theodore Roosevelt and Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler is a typical example of an imperialist depreciating imperialism, of the pot calling the kettle black. There are few wars that have not been later deplored as having been utterly futile and unnecessary by someone of eminent standing whose connection with the international imperialists was as positive as is that of Dr. Butler, the eminent chief of the Pilgrims Society of International Finance. It all seems part of the general scheme to create confusion and contradiction in the minds of the people, and so to avoid disclosure of the highly disciplined organization of the international financial oligarchy and its planned objectives and eventual world domination. Again, same stuff we're seeing here, same stuff we're seeing right now, and have been seeing for years and years. It's never really stopped. Let's see here. He's talking about well, all these guys, I think, are Pilgrim Society members. In my memoirs of 80 years, published in 1924, Chauncey M. Depew records on page 270 a conversation in which Lord Rothschilds offered Puerto Rico and the Philippine Islands to the United States and stated the willingness of the Spanish government to give independence to Cuba and to comply with every demand the United States can make. Regretfully, he records further, the proposition unfortunately came too late, and Mr. McKinley could not stop the war. It was well known in Washington that he was exceedingly adverse to hostilities and believed the difficulties could be satisfactorily settled by diplomacy. But the people were aroused to such an extent that they were determined not only to free Cuba, but to punish those who were oppressing the Cubans. Now, to break for a second, you know, the more I investigate history, the more I read, you know, the powers that be were already getting wrapped up in all these different countries' problems and getting in these entanglements in foreign countries before the OSS or before uh, the CIA was invented or created. So it's just something that they've been having us do. And, you know, no matter what, it always creates less freedom for us. It always creates more hostilities towards us. But they know that. And, of course, a lot of times it's over just racking up debt so they can have more power or so they can rebuild a country after destroying it. There's a lot of money in that, too, of course. He goes on to say, The facts are that McKinley suppressed Spain's formal acceptance of American demands and asked for war the day after receiving that acceptance and that it took every resource of high finance and its controlled jingo press to rush America into a war before any resistance could be organized to oppose the war makers. Mr. Depew guilelessly admits his significant conversation with Lord Nathan Rothschild over 25 years later when it apparently no longer had any interest. He says, this renowned after-dinner storyteller and revered pilgrim founder goes on to repeat the fable of why our war with Spain is now accepted in American history. 
He says, remember that for more than four years, one side was permitted to speak and the other forced to remain silent. The perspective that only time can give, some say, is necessary before the true history of our war can be written and before proper criticism can be made. But the end of the fighting saw a vast and complicated machine feverishly at work to crystallize into history the story of the war as it was told to us as propaganda in the heat thereof. And obviously that's not any breaking news. They write the history as it goes to try to keep from the real history coming out. And then, you know, you have these few brave souls who really do the digging and find the stories, say, from the few other brave souls who actually reported the truth. And then they put it all together and just a few people ever read it. And meanwhile, the masses have been conditioned to believe the lies. He says, uh, Mr. Turner refers to the activities of another great pilgrim at the conclusion of World War I. Our illegal war in Russia was pleasing not only to Paris and London bankers, but to New York bankers as well. Mr. Lamont, a partner of Morgan, was permitted to send an advanced copy of the peace conditions to his Wall Street associates. While acting for the American people at Paris, Lamont participated in the organization of the China Consortium and the International Convention of Bankers on Mexico. So along with the peace arrangements, we find the beginnings of the definite plan of international cooperation in the financing of foreign enterprises advanced by President Farrell of U.S. Steel Corporation a year before. Now on to a little bit different of a subject. This is still from the same book, but he's talking about the English Constitution or the British Constitution and basically why it was never written down so it wouldn't be solidified so they could change it when they needed to. And he says this is from Laws of England, Volume 6. He says, um, Nicholas Murray Butler explained the non-existence of a written British constitution in a speech to the Pilgrim Society at New York on January 22nd, 1936. In his words, he said, Inasmuch as the constitution of Great Britain is not fixed and definite, but is a matter of tradition and of habit. Its interpretation is not by judicial voice, but by legislative act. When as in the Parliament Act of 1911, or as in the Statute of Westminster of 1931, a grave step is taken in changing the organization of the British government. What they really are doing is amending their constitution thereby. Now, that is why they do not have a judicial interpretation of their constitution, because not being written, not being definite, it can and must be dealt with as habit and necessity may require. I know, I know I'm reading a lot on this, but I just wanted you guys to have some historical references to the pilgrims that was actually documented in books and not just things that have been in modern history with websites and things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I talked to Michael McKibben, who is a great researcher on this, and he said I could use his information, you know, as long as I give him credit. And so if you want to understand how the pilgrims still have a lot to do with what's going on today, I'll give you just a quick reference real quick. Then you can go on his website and look it up. So the Purbright Institute is a very prestigious institute who works with vaccines, among other things. 
Well, Lord Purbright was a Pilgrim Society member and part of the Rhodes Roundtables. He was a part of the Rothschild family and inherited a ton of money. He became a lord, and they named the Purbright Institute after him to, you know, to remember him and whatnot. So, of course, Bill Gates is invested and related with the Purbright Institute. And McKibben has brought up the fact that they own a patent to COVID-19 or the coronavirus. So I haven't delved into that deeply, but he's got tons of information on it. And it's just uh, these families that have been in control for so very long and their descendants are still in control. And even the people who are not their descendants have basically went on and continued their legacies and honored them by continuing this operation to control the world. Uh, McKibben was telling me that uh, I believe it was, it may have been Paul Volcker and Henry Kissinger, I believe that that was the two, who started a foundation in Wild Bill Donovan's name, the, the CIA guy who was known for being just absolutely ruthless. So these guys carry on the legacies of their pals who were involved in this network, this interlocking group of networks. And Newth goes on to say later in the book, he says, the ideology of the British Empire has been outlined in the past by various British statesmen, and specifically by Mr. Disraeli, or Lord Beaconsfield. The modern version, which has been broadened to include the United States as a principle in the British Empire, was outlined by Cecil Rhodes about 1895 as follows. And you've heard me mention this quote, but I think he adds a little bit to it. Establish a secret society in order to have the whole continent of South America, the Holy Land, the Valley of the Euphrates, the islands of Cyprus and Candia, the islands of the Pacific, not heretofore possessed by Great Britain, the Malay Archipelago, and the seaboard of China and Japan, and finally the United States. In the end, in the end, Great Britain is to establish a power so overwhelming that wars must cease and the millennium be realized. Oh yeah, that's why they've been pushing all these wars. They've been pushing all these wars so they can bring peace, you know. The secret societies of the above plan apparently came to life immediately after the death of Mr. Rhodes in the Pilgrims of Great Britain, often used by British statesmen in the recent years as a public sounding board. And the Pilgrims of the United States, founded in New York on January 13, 1903, enlisted directories of the secret societies with no indication of purpose. Mr. Rhodes left a fortune of about $150 million in those days to the Rhodes Foundation, apparently largely directed towards the eventual intent of his ideology. One admitting purpose was in creating in American students an attachment to the country from which they originally sprang. It appears that organizations such as Union Now, subversive to liberty and the Constitution of the United States of America have a large sprinkling of the Rhodes Scholars among their staff. And he goes on further to say, For some years, there has evidently been a gradually increasing tempo in the number and degree of the attacks on the Constitution of the United States under guise of an inevitable drift towards union with the British Empire. On August 20th, 1941, Mr. Winston Churchill concluded this project had reached such momentum 
that he could afford to extend it to his blessing in these well-chosen words. And, you know, it's really coming to light that we were taught that Churchill was just such a great guy, but Churchill was behind the EU and he wanted to make a world government and he was part of this whole Rhodes cabal. So we have to remember that. He dragged us into the war for a reason, and that was to further unite the two governments and to get us into debt and make us weaker. So he goes on to say here, this is what Churchill said, these two great organizations of the English-speaking democracies, and he's talking about both the pilgrim societies from the United States and Britain, the British Empire of the United States, will have to be somewhat mixed up together in some of their affairs for mutual and general advantage. For my part, looking out to the future, I do not view the process with any misgivings. I could not stop it if I had wished. No one could stop it. Like the Mississippi, it just keeps rolling along. Let it roll. Let it roll on in full flood. Irresistible. To broader lands and better days. He goes on to mention this book called Pilgrim Partners by Sir Harry Britton, who, of course, was one of the pilgrims. And Britton was one of the directors of the pilgrims, I believe. Uh, he said the it's called Pilgrim's Partners, and the subtitle of the book is 40 Years of British-American Fellowship. And he says, one critic stated in the review, the pilgrims founded in 1902 with one section in England and one in America was described some time ago by a leading New York paper as probably the most distinguished international organization in the world. Each incoming American or British ambassador receives his initial welcome from the pilgrims and gives his first address to the peoples of Britain or America, respectively, from a pilgrim's gathering. And I'll end it right here with this quote from the book, last quote from the book for today. He says, men of millions here sway the destiny, the life or the death of their fellow citizens with an organization which is subversive to the spirit and the letter of the Constitution of the United States, an organization of which not one in a thousand of their fellow citizens has ever even heard. The purpose of these men is completely interwoven with the dependence of their own invariably great fortunes on the operations of the city. Remember, the city is what they're calling London, the Citadel of International Finance. Not only did these men collectively exert a planned influence of immense weight in utter secrecy, but they operate with the support of the immense funds provided by Cecil Rhodes and Andrew Carnegie. And he goes on to talk about the interlocking directories, which is a different roundtable groups and different institutions that are connected to them. He's got some quotes from some bankers in the early 1900s on how only about 12 men basically ruled and ran everything. So, so probably in the next episode, I'll finish up a few quotes from this book. Not as many, but just a few. And then uh, I'll talk about some research from some other people. And we may get into Michael McKibben's information and I'll put his website in my show notes for this one. And remember, there's Charles Savoy as well. And the other guy, what's his name, uh, Vander Ragen, which I really haven't looked too much into for some reason. I just started looking into these guys instead. But um, I assume that his information is pretty similar. 
and then we'll go from there. And uh, I hope that uh, you guys are into this. And I think that once you start looking into the more modern stuff, you're really going to be like, holy crap, I think this is real. I think that maybe this is the mother of all conspiracies. But, you know, it's not far-fetched when you think of all these elites and this old money and why wouldn't they want to keep that money in their families and amongst their friends. And you see that a lot of these families and these banking and these monopoly corporations intermarry for a reason. It's not just because of love. So it's all about keeping those fortunes in those groups of people. And of course, they plan things years and years ahead of time. And I know that it's just unbelievable for some people. And that's one reason a lot of people think that a lot of these things are conspiracies because they just can't understand how something can be contemplated so far back into history. But anyway, that's just the way the world works, right? That's the way things are going. And we're seeing a lot of this stuff come to fruition. Oh, yeah. And by the way, for the next episode also... I remembered that Charles Savoy had talked about a book called War Plotters on Wall Street, and I think it came out maybe 1914. I did find that online, that you can still buy it. It's in print now. But I also found it on archive.org, and I just downloaded the PDF. And it's all about this time period, really the early uh, the World War I era, and how the bankers all kind of pushed that war and was pushing, taking over the world in the United States, these uh, mostly British bankers. But anyway, uh, I'm going to be reading from that. There's 10 pages dedicated to the pilgrims, but basically, basically most of the book is about the pilgrims. But it sounds as if the guy didn't exactly know what the group was called till more towards the end when he actually was somewhere and they were having one of their banquets, and he was let in to the banquet by a worker there and was actually able to watch. And it was near the end of the dinner, but he said there was around, I think he said like 400 people or something like that. Anyway, he said he heard enough to understand what the plot was, and he tells you exactly what he heard in there. And I thought it was pretty interesting. So we'll definitely touch on that book and what he talks about in there as well. And so, like I said before, it's just a matter of making this puzzle, getting more and more pieces. And so I try to consult different sources, as many as I can. I didn't want to just completely copy Michael McKibben and Charles Savoy's work and others, I wanted to at least try to find some books where this had been documented to give it a bit more credibility. Not that their work doesn't provide tons of credibility and historical sources, much more than mine. But anyway, I just wanted to give that basis before I get into their work, because I didn't want it to just be a carbon copy of what they're doing. But there's only so much that you can reference on such a secretive society. So that's where we'll head the next show. As always, I want to thank everyone for listening, taking the time to listen and check out my stuff. I want to thank my patrons. I want to thank Kyle. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Full Metal Keto AF. I want to thank Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. And I want to thank James. And if you want to join the Society of the Cryptic Savants, 
you, my friend, can check out the links in the show notes. And I'm on Gab. I'm trying out some of these other platforms. I started a MeWe. Haven't done much with it yet. I'm on Float. Trying to kind of wean myself off of these main platforms slowly but surely. Of course, I've got a BitChute. I've got a Rumble. I need to put those in my... I've got the BitChute in my LinkedIn or my, excuse me, in my uh, link tree. If you don't know what a link tree is, it's just a link that goes to all of your platforms and all your links like videos and podcasts and Twitter and everything else. So check that out. And I want to thank again, Jack Allen from Conspiracy Just a Coincidence. Uh, he's asked me to be on several shows with him here lately where we we're kind of doing a swap cast, kind of a meeting of the minds type thing. So we were on the Big Dumb podcast, and that was a great show. And then we did a show with Alex from the Newosphere podcast, and he's got a rumble that's got a pretty big following. Then I was on with another cool young guy. Uh, it's called Ramblings of a Madman, and that was a great conversation that we had. So look for that. I've been posting all this stuff on my Twitter and on the other platforms. So thank you all very much. I want to wish you cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.